Hi, and welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We are presented with the support of Medical Mutual. I'm your host, Dan Paletta. Thanks for joining us. On the podcast, we recently had a visit from U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown from the state of Ohio, as we talked about issues in Washington. Now we cross the aisle to welcome our other U.S. Senator from the state of Ohio, Rob Portman, who joins us today for The Landscape. Senator Portman, thanks for being with us today. You bet, Dan. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with the infrastructure bill. You have been critical of the Biden administration and the Democrats for overreaching on the bill. What kind of bill do you believe should be passed that will help our infrastructure needs? And how would we? what's the best way to pay for it? Well, I think it's great to have an infrastructure bill. But the problem with the one that was proposed by uh, President Biden and his team was uh, most of it had nothing to do with infrastructure. Uh, by any definition, you or I or anybody else have, has had over the years, about 20% of it would go towards roads and bridges and rail and transit and even including broadband, which is a broad definition that I think ought to be included in infrastructure, water infrastructure, and so on. So the broadest definition that has ever been used for infrastructure would only be about 20% of the bill because much of it, as they say, is what they call soft infrastructure. So it's things like uh, nursing homes. Um, it's things like uh, providing more child care and so on. And uh, those are worthy goals and those ought to be taken up in other legislation, but not in an infrastructure package. So the first step is that how can we actually define what infrastructure means? And I think we we're pretty far along there. I mean, I think when you look at the proposal the Republicans provided, uh, it's very similar to the Democrat uh, proposals typically on infrastructure. Actually, the Republican proposal would be the biggest infrastructure package ever passed by Congress, you know, because it's everybody's talking higher numbers now. The other issue is the pay-fors, as you say, and that's a really good question. <laughs> that's the hard one. So everybody's for more roads and bridges, but nobody wants to pay for them. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody's willing to do what it takes to get there. Is that the, uh, the analogy? Exactly. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think one problem with saying that, you know, nursing homes are infrastructure is that there's a different pay for for, you know, more uh, subsidy, uh, more subsidies for nursing homes than there would be for a long term capital project like a bridge that might last 50 years. And I think it's appropriate to pay for that kind of a bridge. And we just built one in Cleveland recently. It took us about 20 years to do it. But uh, I think that there is an argument there for longer term financing and even having the government do some debt financing, as we do in the private sector all the time uh, and at the local level uh, with regard to municipal bonds, um, uh, private activity bonds, so that sort of thing. So I think that's one way to pay for it is to use the current authorities that are out there. The one for the roads and bridges is called TIFIA. Uh, the one for water resources is called WIFIA. But the notion is the government can borrow at a lower rate. And so you have this, you know, this leveraging you, you can do to pay for it over time. And I think that that is part of the way you pay for it. Uh, user fees is obviously the other part. There's uh, $200 billion in gas tax user fees that would be available over the next five years. As an example, uh, you need to increase that gas tax or do something else because that wouldn't be enough. Um, I prefer just to index that gas tax going forward, so not increase it. Uh, but looking forward, let's start to put it on an index so that you will have actually over time um, hundreds of billions coming in and even over the five years, tens of billions coming in. So I think there's some, a combination of things like that that can be used. The Biden administration uh, idea was to raise taxes. Uh, the problem with with the taxes they want to raise is it would hurt, you know, the very competitiveness we finally have in this country where it's, it's not a disadvantage to be an American company. You know, we had two great Cleveland companies, uh, you know, choose to invert a few years ago, meaning they became foreign companies just to get out from under our tax code. Uh, one was Eaton, which is a great company, still very important in the Cleveland area, but frankly, they're headquartered in Ireland now. And the other was Steris, 
uh, that became a foreign company. And they did that because our tax code was so uncompetitive. And what the Biden administration wants to do is make us uncompetitive again by raising our taxes, which, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, hurts workers more than anyone else. They say 70 percent of the benefit of the corporate tax reforms went to workers. And if you do the opposite, uh, the same would, would be true. You'd be hurting workers and, and wages. And we saw this. We saw wages going up pre-pandemic. Uh, February of last year was the 19th straight month of wage gains of over 3% annualized, which I love. And we loved it in Northeast Ohio because we finally were seeing real wages, you know, above inflation. So that's the danger. Uh, the, the taxes, Dan, I will tell you that the Biden folks proposed, and I don't know if this was a serious proposal or if it was just to sort of get a big proposal out there, $2.4 trillion and, and these big tax increases, but the tax increases were five times higher than the tax cuts for the same businesses in 2017. In other words, it wasn't just reversing what we did in 2017 and making our, our you know, U.S. companies less competitive again. It was actually adding new taxes on top of that. And we can send you all the Joint Tax Committee analysis of that. It's a non-nonpartisan analysis, but that just doesn't make any sense right now as we're trying to be more competitive. At the same time, we are working on a bill on the House and Senate floor right now that has to do with being more competitive, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China. Well, Part of the way you're competitive is you uh, have a tax structure that makes your businesses and your workers competitive. So anyway, that's my concern with it. Having said that, I think we can get to a bipartisan compromise here because I think we're starting to define it closer to what is real infrastructure. The apples to apples comparison is about $600 billion on the Republican side. Again, unprecedented amount by any Republican or Democrat proposal in the past. And the Democrat proposal uh, with the Biden administration for the same type of infrastructure uh, you know, real infrastructure would be about 900 billion. And although 300 billion sounds like a lot of money, and it is, it used to be a lot of money uh, in this town, uh, I think we could bridge that, that, that gap uh, in part by using some of this creative financing that you use with regard to longer term capital expenses. This is The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. More of our conversation in just a moment. But first, a word from our partner, Medical Mutual. You mentioned China. You recently led a bipartisan group along uh, with Senator Tom Carper from Delaware and urging Catherine Tai, the US, uh, United States trade representative, to restart the process for American businesses to apply for exemptions from tariffs from Chinese imports so they can buy these products more easily. They're more difficult to get from other countries. Other industries are also urging the Biden administration to offer relief on tariffs. So what's the case for these exemptions? Well, it's a tough issue. You know, when we uh, decided to uh, put tariffs on China, um, in order to get them to comply with the international rules. Um, you know, China's response is to uh, put tariffs on us and you got this sort of uh, increase on both sides of the, of the trade barriers. And uh, some of the tariffs that were increased on products from China were products that American manufacturers use to make a U.S. product. So as an example, there's a company in the Cleveland area uh, that makes the starters that are used for gas grills. And there's a piece of that that's only made, or at least it was only made in China. Now they may have moved some of the manufacturing. And they were socked with this big tariff. And of course, that made it harder for them to sell their U.S. assembled product. Um, and so they came to us and uh, we were able to get an exclusion uh, because there was no place else to get this product other than from China. And they needed it to be a successful U.S. company. That exclusion process ended and was never restarted. And so what we're asking for, uh, and it's a bipartisan letter, as you indicate, and it's, it's, I think a majority of the Senate feels this way, is that let's restart that exclusion process so that companies can have a chance to make their case and to say, okay, 
uh, we agree we want to make China play by the rules, but don't punish us because, in effect, if it's only made in China right now, it's going to take us a few years to move it out of China to somewhere else if we do that. Uh, in the meantime, we lose our business and lose American jobs. So that's that's the issue with exclusions. And I think you need to have some process here to give people due process to be able to make their case. And as we talk about jobs, one of the things you've talked about extensively is that this federal $300 per week unemployment supplement that was passed by the Democrats in their last spending bill is undermining employers' efforts to hire new workers. A lot of states, including Ohio, are going to are eliminating that supplement. But there are other factors, as you well know, things like child care and, and people concerned about getting back to work because they're concerned about their health. Is there anything that, that Congress can do to alleviate these difficulties for employers? Any way we can help them get people back to work? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is the sort of the question of the day in Ohio. Um, I'm sure you're getting a lot of input from your uh, Cranes readers, uh, but I'm getting an earful from businesses. It was first just small businesses uh, and, you know, franchisees, uh, you know, restaurants, and, and now it's everybody. I have a, uh, a friend who's a manufacturer in the Cincinnati area in Hamilton, Ohio, uh, Vinyl Max. I don't think she'd mind me saying the name of the company. I think they're looking for 60 people right now. She only has about 225 employees, but she just cannot get people to come back. And some of them had left during uh, COVID. She didn't fire anybody, by the way, during COVID, but she can't get people to come back to work. And, and she attributes it uh, primarily to the fact that the federal government is paying a $300 supplement every week on top of the state benefit on unemployment insurance. So if you become unemployed, the state of Ohio basically says, we'll, we'll provide half of whatever your income was. And so that's on average 360 bucks a week. Um, and then on top of that, another $300 a week um, means that that person on unemployment may be making about the same that that person would make if they were at Vinylmax or any other company, maybe more than uh, some places. On average, nationally, 42% of those people are making more on unemployment than they were at their work. And in addition, uh, Democrats passed as part of the last stimulus bill a tax break for the first $10,000 of your UI benefit, which you don't get if you're you know, a truck driver making 40,000 bucks a year. So there's another incentive not to go back to work. So we got to figure it out. Um, my own view is that we ought to end the $300 per week federal supplement, uh, but we ought to continue to have the more expansive definition of unemployment insurance, which includes the self-employed, because I think that was uh, an important reform and it's, it's costly, but I think it's a good idea. And for people who've lost their jobs through no fault of their own, we needed to do this back during the height of COVID. But now, Dan, we have more jobs open in America than ever in our history. And you see it when you walk down uh, the main street of any uh, community in the Northeast Ohio area, uh, and you'll see the Help Wanted signs up, and you'll see the bonuses being offered. 8.1 million jobs are open right now. For manufacturers, which is a key issue for Ohio, there are 720,000 open positions right now. And I was with a manufacturer over the weekend uh, who was giving me an earful on this and, uh, you know, giving us a hard time and saying, I can't compete with the government. And his point was his manufacturing facility, they can't buy some parts to be able to deliver the product that they're making because the parts uh, manufacturer, his supplier can't find the workers to be able to produce the part. And I'm sure you're hearing this at Cranes. It's really a tough situation right now. And there are restaurants, literally, as you know, that have closed down. Uh, one famous one, not famous one, but it's become famous uh, in Columbus because the owner went uh, public and said, I made it through COVID. I used the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, and I, and I, and I 
you know, did everything right. I made the sacrifices. And now I've got to close down because my own government is working against me and I can't find workers. Um, so it's it's a real problem. And you mentioned childcare um, and just the concern about COVID. I believe those are factors as well. I believe on childcare, obviously part of the issue is schools. So when you've still got a lot of schools that haven't opened and the best numbers we have is that uh, about 54% of our K through eight schools have reopened, but the others have not. And that's a real problem for childcare because, you know, parents are used to being able to have their kids at school during, during the day. So part of the answer there is obviously getting our kids back to school in a safe way, which CDC uh, Center for Disease Control now says you can do. And then part of the issue is we do need to come up with better ways to, to reduce the costs of childcare. And that, that's another discussion uh, other than infrastructure, but it is about, you know, helping to ensure that people have the ability to come to work. But I think the biggest factor is the 300. In terms of the COVID fear, I get that, but, you know, we have more than more than half of adults, uh, well over half now in Ohio who are vaccinated. And um, again, workforces need to be safe. Uh, I've got legislation to give them some incentive to do that through a tax credit. We couldn't get that passed yet, but the point is social distancing ought to be preserved and we ought to have a safe place to work, but uh, people need to get back to work and back to school and back to church and back to synagogue and back to a more normal life. And uh, we, we can do that now. Uh, by the way, it turns out Governor DeWine's uh, gambit of saying, you know, we're going to uh, have a lottery in effect for individuals and uh, and free college for, for young younger people seems to be working. You know, more people are getting vaccinated in Ohio now than some other states. And and I think that's very good. I mean, I think we should encourage more vaccination because that helps our entire community. Senator Rob Portman joins us today for The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We are presented with support of Medical Mutual. Senator Portman, let's talk about the minimum wage. Many large corporations are now raising that wage to $15 per hour. You and a number of Republicans have been opposed to the raising of the minimum wage. Why, why wouldn't that work? Well, I'm actually supportive of raising the minimum wage and have been um, during my time in the Senate. And I'm, I'm actually the co-sponsor of a bill that raises it to $10 uh, from the seven twenty-five. Um, and this was one that uh, Senator Cotton, Senator Romney, Senator Manchin and others have been for. Uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say Senator Manchin. He's at $11, uh, which I think is an interesting number because if it's $11, you're above the poverty rate for a, for a typical you know, family of, of four. Um, so I think, I think we, we can get to a, a minimum wage increase that, that makes sense. Um, and my concern is if you raise it too fast and too high, you will lose jobs. Uh, and those jobs will tend to be younger people who are, as you know, the primary uh, recipients of jobs that are uh, relatively low income and, and, and that are minimum wage uh, or somewhat above minimum wage between seven twenty-five and say eleven dollars an hour. But I think we can I think we can we can we can get a bipartisan consensus around that. Uh, I'm working with a group. There's a group of ten Republicans and ten Democrats who meet periodically, and we we had a meeting last week on this very topic. And uh, most of us I think are willing to sign up to a, a, a minimum wage increase, but one that is. Uh, over time, slowly going up, so you don't have this dislocation and you lose the jobs. The the best uh, estimates out there, I think, are three million jobs would be lost if you take it to fifteen dollars, um, as Senator Sanders and others would would like to do. But if you do it slowly over time, Dan, I don't think it would have nearly that that impact. And I think you would have, as you say, almost a catch up here because you have a lot of businesses right now raising uh, their wages anyway. In Ohio, we peg our minimum wage to the level of inflation. So we have a CPI measurement and 
so that wage goes up slowly over time. It went up from 725 to I don't know 785 to 850, and um, so we're already on that track in, in Ohio, going up over time slowly. I like that idea, so I would raise it up to the 10 or 11 dollars, and then I would put it on the on the CPI, uh, the appropriate CPI index. It kind of takes the politics out of it, and it just kind of make makes sense in terms of not hurting these small businesses and not losing jobs at the lower end, particularly for young people, because you want them to get that work experience. And uh, you you worked minimum wage, I'm sure. I worked minimum wage. My kids all worked minimum wage. And probably when we did that, when we were, you know, 16 to 19 years old, maybe those those employers, you know, were willing to pay uh, minimum wage, but not much else. Um, but it gave us work experience. And I think that's important. Some recent economic data, particularly the April jobs numbers, have been weaker than expected. Is this normally part of a recovery from the kind of trauma we've suffered? Does it raise any concerns about what the Biden administration wants to do in terms of cost? Is it too much, given maybe the jobs numbers aren't as good as we would hope? Yeah, I mean, the April numbers were disappointing. Uh, they thought there'd be a million. There were 266,000. And I honestly think the, the, the main reason, when you look at these jobs numbers, it's usually, um, you know, there aren't enough jobs being created, number one, but number two, that there aren't enough jobs being offered. And that's kind of the the typical way a poor month would would look. April uh, did not look that way. Um, one, there weren't enough jobs being created as compared to what everybody estimated, what we all need right now coming out. And by the way, um, you know, I think you'll see better numbers in May because of what some states have done, as you talked about. But the second part, there were numbers, a number of jobs being offered. So there were there were unprecedented number of jobs, a record number of jobs being offered. So the the job openings are huge. Uh, the people taking those jobs is relatively small. And I, I think that goes to the $300 um, unemployment insurance issue primarily, but also some other factors you mentioned. Uh, some people still being hesitant to go back to work for COVID, although I, I think that's changing very rapidly. And then the issue of child care you mentioned, I think, you know, schools reopen, that'll change. And hopefully some summer programs reopen as we get into the summer. But I mean, I think that should be a wake up call for us. And we should all want everybody to get back to work. I mean, why would we not want that? The other thing I will say, and this is probably pretty obvious to everybody who's listening, inflation is here. And for the Secretary of the Treasury to say, as she did in response to some questions that we asked her a few weeks ago, well, it's not it's not really inflation or it's it's uh, not a structural inflation or it's inflation. I mean, you go to the gas pump, go to the grocery store, try to buy lumber. If you're doing a home repair, boy, things have really gone up. And uh, I think, you know, when the administration put out the $1.9 trillion package for COVID relief right after we had done a $900 billion package. These are huge numbers, and the amount of stimulus was unprecedented, and, and now they want to do more. But the point is, at that time, a number of people said that if you put that kind of stimulus into the economy, um, including the additional individual payments of $1,400 to get to $2,000, plus the UI benefit, plus the other child tax credit uh, and earning income credits and just more cash into the economy, more stimulus, you're going to see inflation. And Larry Summers famously, who's the former uh, Democrat, uh, he is still a Democrat, but former Democratic Treasury Secretary, you know, said this, and, and so have others. Jason Furman recently has talked about this, who's, uh, who was in the Obama administration, Council of Economic Advisors chair. And a lot of us on, on the Republican side of the aisle said, wow, this is this is really a risk uh, that you're going to have this inflation. And that, that's, that's the concern I have is higher interest rates and higher inflation. If we don't begin to get, you know, the spending down a little bit so that it's, you know, not creating this bubble effect. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you begin to see some leveling off as the economy begins to pick up, people get back to work. 
but right now there's lots of pressure still on inflation. And again, some of the people I spoke to over the weekend who looked me up and uh, gave me an earful, you know, who are in business, who are paying these higher costs for all their raw materials. I mean, Procter & Gamble just raised their prices across the board because of this. They don't think it's going to be over anytime soon. I hope they're wrong. I mean, I hope you begin to see some leveling out because inflation just is the worst thing for middle-class families. I mean, it just it just eats into your savings and your ability to have a you know a good standard of living. You may be making more money, but the money's worth less. Um, and then same with interest rates. We want the rates to stay relatively low, and and they've already creep, uh, crept up. I hope they won't continue to creep up. As we all know, you've chosen not to run for re-election in 2020-22. Are you keeping an eye on the race? Lots of people are lining up for your seat. Any thoughts? There are lots of them. <laughs> of the uh, four people who say they're running, 10 of them have called me in the last two weeks. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> it does. <laughs> there are a bunch running who aren't really saying they're running, but, uh, but, but we think that they will. I mean, I mean, I think it's good. There's a lot of competition. Um, and, you know, there's some good people running who got good experience. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm not endorsing anybody at this point. I may in the future, but I want to be sure Ohio is well represented. And, you know, Ohio is a changed state from the time I first started running. It, it used to be viewed as a classic swing state. And, you know, we had John Glenn and Howard Metzenbaum in the Senate uh, at the same time as an example, not, not so many years ago. And I worked with John Glenn when he was in the Senate. I was in the House of Representatives. Uh, now the state has shifted more toward the conservative side. Um, I think it's still a swing state, uh, but it is a swing state on the center right rather than the center or center left. And so President Trump won it twice by eight points, which is a huge margin for Ohio. That's bigger, by the way, the eight points than the combined margin of George Bush and Barack Obama. So because they won with you know very narrow margins, typically. It'll be interesting to see what, what happens. We now have uh, all of our state elected officials, constitutional officials are Republican. The legislature is, is Republican with pretty big majorities. And obviously the governor and lieutenant governor and 12 of the 16 members of Congress are Republicans. So it's a, it's a more red state than it used to be. So what's the plan in 2022? Just more kayaking? Or what are you going to do for fun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll come back and kayak on the Cuyahoga if they'll have me. Um, I've, done some, some, I've done some rowing and some kayaking on the Cuyahoga River, which is fun, and some boating just generally. Look, I, I, I don't know. I, I do love my family and I do love the private sector. And I look forward to getting back to both. Senator Rob Portman, thanks for joining us for The Landscape today. Great pleasure having you with us today. Thanks, Dan. Great to talk to you. Take care. Senator Rob Portman joined us for The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast presented with the support of Medical Mutual. For our producer, Cody Smith, I'm Dan Paletta. We'll talk again soon.